So last week, we started a series that we called When the Fastened Seatbelt Sign Comes On. And we talked about the seatbelt sign on a passenger jet. And we said, and it's interesting that someone that was here last week who's not here today, uh, she flew on sometime midweek and took a picture <laughs> of her fastened seatbelt sign over her seat and sent it to me this week. So I'm like, oh, this is critical. So hopefully she had a smooth flight. But we expect the fastened seatbelt sign to come on in a passenger jet under three circumstances, under two circumstances for sure, right? When we're taking off, when we're getting ready to land, but it's the third one that causes us more concern. It's that mid-flight turbulence. And we talked about that quite extensively last week to kind of set, uh, kind of just set the stage for that. The analogy is pretty obvious, I think. Uh, we've all experienced turbulence in our lives. Uh, if you've been alive, alive long enough to remember experiencing unexpected turbulence on a national level, how many of you ever have, you remember anything like that that affected kind of like the whole country, okay? Uh, or maybe you've experienced it in the workplace, uh, maybe you've experienced it in a church experience somewhere along the way. And, and for sure, we've all experienced turbulence on some level, like on a personal level, right? To some degree on a personal level. Maybe it's something major that you had to like buckle in, tighten the belt, hold on for dear life. Or maybe it's just bumpy uh, enough to be an inconvenience and you might spill something on yourself. But it still doesn't matter. It still feeds this feeling of uncertainty, because when it comes to turbulence on an airplane or in life, it's really about the uncertainty. Uh, when that fasten seatbelt sign comes on, or at, when it first comes on, right, you're wondering how bad is this going to get? Is this going to be uncomfortable or is this going to be like overhead bin is going to come open and a 30-pound oak carry-on is going to smack me in the face? How bad is this going to be? right? Or maybe even worse. How long is it going to last? Is this a passing thing or is this going to change my life as I know it? So I said last week that, and if you missed last week, I encourage you to hop on our podcast or on our website on the media player there and get caught up. But I said, I'm going to give you four, um, we're going to do four messages, at least that's the plan for now. I want to give you four words, four things to do when we face uh, the uncertainty that triggers the seatbelt sign right? Four things to do when the seatbelt sign comes on and you don't know what the future holds, but you know it's probably not what you'd hope for. So, and I said as a way of disclaimer last week that I'm not sure any of these four messages will stand alone. So don't jump all over this yet, okay? Don't dismiss it as being too cliched or churchy or overly religious. Uh, you know, as, oh, well, of course I would expect that. That's your response to turbulence and uncertainty. Let's get to the end of this series, uh, hopefully by the end of January, and see where we land with it then, okay? So last week the word was, anybody remember the word last week? Pray. It was pray. And if you weren't here, you probably could have guessed that because you would expect me to say that uh, when there's uncertainty and the seatbelt sign is on. Uh, pray, yeah, pray. But I'd like to think we dug a little bit deeper than that than we might have expected last week. And we said that wherever there's uncertainty, there's always fear. And in that fear resides a desire. Somewhere packed in that fear is a desire, a longing. And here's what I know. That if we can ever get to that, if we can ever get to that desire... And if we can ever hand it off to our Heavenly Father, we will hear Him say, I'll handle that. I'll take care of that. And in looking at the, our passage last week in Philippians 4, we concluded that what God has to offer is a peace that precedes anything actually being 
peaceful. That's the peace of God. So today, we're going to talk about another word, and it's the word remember. <clears throat> While it's true there are certain things that we, all of us would like to forget, there are some things we cannot afford to forget, and here's why. Because God's faithfulness in your past brings a ray of hope into your future. And if, and if you or I forget what God has done for us in the past, then as we face the discomfort of the present and the uncertainty of the future, there is nothing but fear. And here's why. Because if we don't see him in our past, we forget to factor him into our future. And if suddenly in the uncertainty of life, whether it's how you've been impacted by what's happening in your family or maybe your marriage or your finances or your job situation or maybe it's a health thing or the health of someone that you love or whatever it might be, when we forget about God's past faithfulness, when we look into the future, all we tend to see is uncertainty. And that kind of uncertainty has the power, as we're going to see in this passage from the Old Testament in just a minute, it has a tendency to feed all sorts of inaccurate views of God, all kinds of inaccurate views about the world around us. Uh, it leads to unhealthy habits and behaviors and dysfunctional and toxic relationships and poor decision-making on every level. So today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. <clears throat> it's actually a long story that I'm going to try to shorten a little bit. It's a long story about a man who forgot. He just forgot. And as you read the story, you're probably going to think the same thing that I thought as I reread it this week. I've read this story lots of times in the past. I've taught on it in the past. But this week, I tried to read it with uh, fresh eyes. And my response was really, like, how could you be so clueless? Like, how could you lose sight? How could you forget? Look at all that God has done in your life, in, like recently. How could you lose sight of that? And that's unfair because it's actually quite easy to do this because when we forget God's past faithfulness, we forget to factor him into the future. When we forget to factor him into the future, of course, we tend to be overcome with fear and anxiety. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> this is the story of Elijah. Let me just give a, a heads up uh, about something as we start the story. First of all, this story is coming from the Old Testament. This is really like the Jewish scripture. This is the scripture that Jesus grew up on. Sometimes we wonder how to process and how to apply what we read in the Old Testament. And, um, and yes, as a follower of Jesus, we, our focus is on the New Testament, right? Because Jesus came to bring a new covenant. The new covenant didn't add on to the old covenant. It was a new covenant. But there's a reason we have the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And as we look into the stories and, or the various types of literature in the Old Testament, before we simply like, I, like maybe dismiss it as being irrelevant, like that's not a God I want to believe in, so I, that's not relevant to me, we have to remember there's a reason that these stories and these poems and these prophecies and these allegories have been preserved for us. Let's dig in past the surface, get to the point, get to the principle, get to the truth, sometimes get to the warning or the reminder that's here for us. There's a reason it's been preserved for us. If you're not a Christian or maybe you're a little skeptical about the Bible and all this stuff, I completely understand that. And I want you to know up front, today we're going to talk about a couple of stories, this, this main story that is just really weird and it's strange and it involves some stuff that you're like, really? So like when we read it, you're going to be like, I'm so sure that happened. It seems kind of like fairy tale quality. Again, it's important that we understand the context of what we're reading, and that's true of the New Testament, and I would say it's especially true of the Old Testament. It's important to know who was doing the writing, who they were writing to, like who's the intended audience, 
what was happening in their world at the time, and then what type of literature is this? Like, is it a written record of an oral storytelling? Uh, is it a historical account? Is it allegory? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Oh, and if it's prophecy, we have to then ask, who is it speaking to? Like, who is the audience for this prophecy? Because if we're not the intended audience, we don't get to claim the prophecy and hold God to a promise that he didn't make to us. That's important. Anyway, the reason I can embrace these stories as true and accept that they happened isn't simply because I first read it in a leather-bound book written in Shakespearean English. That doesn't make it trustworthy. For me, the primary reason I embrace these stories as true is because Jesus did. Jesus accepted the authority of the Old Testament Scripture. Doesn't mean that he accepted everything as literally true. Not everything is to be interpreted literally. And if that doesn't sit right with you, I don't think you've ever read Song of Songs. Okay, you haven't. Or you haven't read, or Song of Solomon, depending on the translation that you're reading, okay? Even the most famous psalm in the scripture, Psalm 23, is an allegory. It's not literal. We aren't sheep. Just saying. Never thought of it that way, right? The Lord is not a literal shepherd. Every phrase, look at Psalm 23, every phrase in Psalm 23 is a word picture. So anyway, with that disclaimer, 1 Kings 17, here's a story, let me just give you a little bit of background. The first king of Israel was a man named Saul. Good job. After Saul uh, was, right? After David, right. After Solomon, nobody knows because here's what happened. After Solomon, this is the kind of stuff that you learn. Tell you what, if you're like, I didn't know any of these answers. If, if, you, if this is new to you, I would encourage you to volunteer this week. Talk to me about volunteering on the next schedule for Surge, which is our elementary kids, ages six through nine. They, uh, they work through a curriculum called What's in the Bible? And you will learn this kind of stuff with some six to nine-year-olds, and they'll teach you some stuff. So after Solomon, the nation of Israel divided into two parts. The two parts were called the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you have to be careful. It gets a little confusing once you get into this part of the story because after Solomon, the nation divided. And the two nations primarily, like they mostly functioned individually, but sometimes like they were at odds with each other, but sometimes they helped each other out. So the story we're going to read about today happened in the nation of Israel after the two had split. What happened was each of these nations had a series of really bad kings. A few good kings mixed in there, but mostly bad kings. And the king we're going to read about today was the seventh uh, or eighth king in Israel, and his name was Ahab. You may not have heard of Ahab, but I guarantee you've heard of his wife. Anybody remember his wife's name? Jezebel, right. Not a name we use a lot. Except for the little girl I met today. I'm like, this is my daughter Jezebel. I'm like, no, it didn't happen. But uh, you don't... It doesn't happen. You might name your cat that, but only after you've learned its personality. You, don't, uh, you just don't hear people naming their children after Jezebel. Because Jezebel is associated with lots and lots of negative things, and this story is how it all came to be. So here's what happened. Ahab was the king of Israel. He's a terrible king. And then he married outside of Israel, which God said clearly, don't do that. So he went outside of Israel to Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, and found himself a wife, Jezebel, the oh, this is important, the daughter of the king of Tyre. And he brought Jezebel back to Israel, and she brought with her her pagan gods. 
So before long, Jezebel has emerged as the power behind the throne. Their marriage was, first of all, a political alliance, bringing advantages to both nations. And it, then it presented an opportunity for Jezebel to, to spread her Baal religion with its many gods, its ritual sex, its temple prostitutes. She hates the monotheistic Hebrew religion, and under her influence, King Ahab protects and encourages pagan rituals. And Jezebel brings in, at this point, 450 priests of Baal from her native Phoenicia, and at the same time as many of the prophets of Yahweh executed. So it's a great time to be living in Israel. So God gets fed up. And the Bible says that Ahab did more evil than all the other kings before him. So God sends, the story's not done, right? He sends Elijah the prophet. And this is what he would typically do. To send a prophet. And in this case, to send Elijah to Ahab to say, Ahab, get your act together. Bad things are going to happen. So it's time to turn it around. So he comes to Ahab, who's married to Jezebel. I'm just giving you an opportunity to say that name. It's a cool name. Here's what God says. He says, because of your sin, because of your wickedness, and because of the worship of Baal all over Israel, I'm going to stop the rain. I'm going to stop it for years. And then Elijah turns around and books it out of the city. So I'm going to begin. That's the context. That's, that's the backstory. I'm going to begin in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. I don't know why I had to tell us where he was from and why he told us he was a Tishbite, but that's important to some, for some reason. The Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, verse three, leave here, like no duh, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I've ordered the ravens to feed you there. Now, that's weird, first of all. That is weird. I don't know if you've ever received food from a raven or a bird of any kind. But like, if you think seagulls are disgusting, like these birds are disgusting. So Elijah delivers this message to Ahab, and then he runs out of town. And God's like, yeah, good idea. You need to go hide. So Elijah says, yes, God. And he does exactly what God tells him to do. Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up. Why? Because there'd been no rain in the land. Verse 8, and the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. So again, God provides for Elijah, even though there's no water, he sends him to live in the home of this widow in Zarephath. The irony here is this, that Ahab by this time, we find a little bit later in the story, is very mad at Elijah because he prophesied that there would be no rain and sure enough, there's no rain. In fact, there's no rain now going on three years. So Ahab is very angry and he sends people out all over Israel and all over Judah and all over the surrounding nations looking for Elijah. Meanwhile, God is hiding Elijah, get this, in Zarephath, which is only about eight miles down the road from Jezebel's hometown. Anyway, in the meantime, God provides for Elijah. Chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after a long time, in the third year, there's been no rain for, for nearly three years. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. <laughs> so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, just like that. So Elijah's a, like he's a Mr. Follow the Directions kind of prophet. Whatever God says, Elijah does. Three years, no rain. God takes care of Elijah. Now he sends Elijah back to Ahab to say, okay, to prove that I am the Lord your God I, and, and that I have mercy, I'm going to send rain. 
Verse 16. So Obadiah went to Ahab. Where did Obadiah come from? Let me tell you what this is all about. Elijah's headed back to meet Ahab, and he runs into an old friend named Obadiah, and he says, Obadiah, uh, I'm, on my, my, I'm on my way to meet Ahab. Uh, would you, like, run ahead of me? I don't know if he had errands to run or what the deal was, but he's like, run ahead of me and tell Ahab I want to meet with him. And Obadiah's like, no, no way. I'm not going to do that. Do you realize he's trying to kill you? It's been almost three years. He's been looking for you. And if I go and tell him I found you, and then I come back and you're gone because you're going to run, he's going to kill me. And Elijah's like, don't worry about it. You tell Ahab, I want to meet with him because I've got a message from God. And that's what happens. Verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. It's interesting. Like, I think Ahab got on the road and wanted to meet him as soon as possible. He saw Elijah. He hasn't seen Elijah for three years, and he's really mad. You ever been mad about something for three years? Yeah. Oh, okay. Another sermon. He, sa- he said to him, he says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? It's like, what? I haven't made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your, fa- your father's family have. It's like, burn on you, Ahab. You're the troubler of Israel. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Verse 19, this is out of nowhere. I have no idea this is, this is coming. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Oh, and bring, bring the 450 prophets of Baal. And bring the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So here's a side note. <clears throat> Asherah was one of three of the prominent goddesses of the Canaanite pantheon, all right? So worshipers of Asherah believed her to be the queen of heaven. So if you're the queen of heaven, you are essentially the wife of Yahweh. Oh, that's a problem. And the problem we're worshiping, the people were worshiping Asherah alongside Yahweh in Yahweh's temple. So we got a problem. Ahab meets with Elijah and says, look, I got a message from God. I want you to meet me. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but I want you to meet me on Mount Carmel, bring all the prophets of Baal, bring all the prophets of all these other pagan gods that, we've been wor- that you guys have been worshiping, and, and basically we're going to have a showdown. I'm going to prove once and for all who truly is God and who should be the God of Israel. So I'm sure if you grew up in Sunday school, you remember this story from Sunday school. You remember the flannel graph? Do you remember it now? It's coming back to you, the flannel graph. And uh, here's what they did. They had a God contest. So they go to Mount Carmel, and they build an altar to Baal. There were over 450 prophets there, and they build this incredible altar. And Elijah offers this challenge. He's like, tell you what, let's build two altars. Let's put the wood and the animal and the whole deal. Let's get the sacrifice ready. Make the sacrifice to our gods, but let's not light them on fire. Let's do this differently. Let's ask our gods to light them on fire. And I'll let you go first. So the prophets of Baal and the other false prophets begin to pray. They begin to plead with their gods to light the altar to demonstrate to all the people that their gods are the true gods. So they begin to pray early in the morning. There are hundreds of these guys and they're dancing and they're praying and they're going through all these rituals trying to convince their gods to light the altar. And this whole scene becomes kind of humorous to Elijah. And I love this part, this stuff in the Bible. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. (coughs) So I think the first instance of trash talking in the Bible. (laughs) That all you got? Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. (laughs) Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So Elijah, just picture this over there all by himself, 
and he starts to taunt these prophets. And it's not like there's a couple of them. There's 450 of them. And he taunts them because he knows the God they're worshiping as a false god. And he knows nothing's going to happen. But verse 28, so they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom. I'm like, really? Okay. Until their blood flowed. This is what they did to, to prove their devotion to their gods. They started cutting themselves with knives. It's quite a scene here now. Verse 29, midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention, just as Elijah suspected. And all the while, Ahab's sitting over on the side watching this whole thing. And Elijah goes over to his altar and he actually rebuilds an old altar where they used to worship the true God. But there hadn't been worship of the true God in this nation for quite some time. So he rebuilds this old altar and he puts the wood on it. And he says to the people, I want you to pour water on this. Now, here's the deal. If you're trying to build a fire, you don't pour water on the stuff you're trying to light on fire. Okay, we know that, right? He says, go ahead, pour water on it. And they're like, okay. So they poured a bunch of water on it. And then they poured more water on it. And he's like, it's not enough, more water. And they pour more water on it. The Bible says the water was flowing off of this altar, filling up trenches all the way around the altar. Then Elijah begins to pray, verse 36. It says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And we're like, well, of course. No, duh. You know, what else can you do in a situation like this? Verse 40, here's something to do. Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. So now we got a wholesale turnaround. The whole nation. We're going back to God because... Like, we were at this contest, and woohoo! Israel's God is God. We weren't sure. We, were, we, we didn't know, and now we know. We were there at the contest, and we were there when the, the God, like, we're for the God who sends fire out of heaven. That was amazing. What a show. Did you see that? I mean, how could you not be for that? And the whole nation is beginning to turn back to God. And Ahab, for one, can't believe it. <laughs> and he looks up, and sure enough, there's a little tiny cloud that forms in the sky. And they're going to have rain. Things are going to turn around. And Elijah's the hero. And if you're Elijah at this point, like, you are the man. Like, you took out 450 prophets of Baal, and then just because you took out 400 other false prophets, and you single-handedly bring them down, you start a revival in the nation. The whole nation now is starting to turn back to the one true God. You are it. Then there's King Ahab, who's kind of a nobody at this point. You're Elijah, the prophet speaking for God. And then something interesting happens. And this is where the story turns. And Ahab heads back home. And guess who's waiting there for him? Jezebel. Jezebel. And she is not happy. I think Ahab went home and told her the story. Like, you, you wouldn't believe this. 
all our prophets. They're like cutting themselves and shouting, and it didn't work. No fire. Baal never answered. But Elijah gets up there, and he prays this really simple prayer, and boom, fire comes down and burns the dirt. Like it burns the, everything and the dirt and the rocks, and it licks up the water. Oh, and by the way, he slaughtered all of our prophets. And Ahab's kind of brokenhearted, and Jezebel is angry. And she's like, wait till I get my hands on this guy. Verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, I bet she did, to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, Elijah, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be like my dead prophets. Dead. Now, if you're Elijah, and God has taken care of you for three years when there's no water, God's brought food to you by ravens. There are all these other stories we kind of skipped over in here too, but it's just remarkable how God cared for Elijah. Then God sends you to Mount Carmel, and it's 1 to 850, and you win. And Jezebel sends you a threatening message through a messenger, and you're worried? It's a threat from one person. She didn't even like come to find you in person. She sent a messenger. I mean, are you kidding? Who, who, who does she think she is? Have you seen what God just did? The Bible tells us in verse 3 that Elijah was afraid. And we read that and we're like, afraid of what? The king of the nation just fled from your presence, right? You've won. It's over. But the Bible says Elijah was afraid. Here's what he did, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, it's about 100 miles away. It would have taken him two to three weeks to get to Beersheba. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. It's like, have we missed something in the story? Is there a chapter that got left out? How did we get here? Elijah, what's wrong with you? Verse 4, he says, I've had enough, Lord. <laughs> Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors, which means because they're dead, right? So Jezebel's after him. I might as well be dead. Verse 5, and he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Verse 8, an angel comes and wakes him up. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. Don't, don't fly right through that. He travels for 40 days and 40 nights and he, until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, and there he went into a cave and spent the night. So now he's like six weeks walking distance away from where all the action is. And I love this next part because I think this is God's question for us today. As we think about all that God has done in the past and we forget so quickly what he has done and we find ourselves making decisions based on fear and anxiety and all the stuff going on around us and we panic and we freak out and we do all sorts of desperate things. We take matters into our own hands and we wonder what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what happens if and what about and what if this and what if that and I'm afraid and what if all this other stuff and we're just like Elijah. We run, we're afraid and we get ourselves into situations that we have no business being in all because we're afraid of what the future might hold. So God asked him this very penetrating question, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing here? 
you're 200 miles away from what I'm doing. So what are you doing here? Elijah, have I missed something? Like, didn't I care for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's ravens, but it's cool, but it wasn't gourmet, so it was okay. Did I provide for you when there was no water? Yeah, you did. Didn't I send you to the widow? Yeah. Did she take care of you? Yeah, she did. Weren't you the one I saw on the mountain? 850 to 1. And I sent fire, and I answered your prayer, and you're the hero, and they killed all the prophets of Baal, and they turned back to me. Like, wasn't that you? Yeah. So what are you doing here? Here's his answer, verse 10. <laughs> I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too, in case you didn't know, God. And God's like, I think God's looking around like, is this the same guy? Like, what, what happened? What are you doing? What are you doing here? You have no business being here. And the story goes on, verse 11. The Lord said, Elijah, I want you to show you something. So would you please step outside? So he says, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord because the Lord is about to pass by. He's like, Elijah, like, whoa, 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 like you've totally lost perspective. You've completely forgotten. You've, you've lost all your perspective. So let's come here for a second. I want to show you something. We're going to have a little reminder. So he calls Elijah out to stand outside. Verse 11. It says, a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks. I can't imagine what that might have looked like. I do know I don't think it was a 30-second thing. It probably took all day. This was a storm that moved and broke rocks. And there stood Elijah, huddled against the side of his cave, watching this incredible storm after God had said, hey, I want to show you something. Keep reading. It says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. And we read these verses and we just kind of keep reading, right? But, but let's stop for a second. He's all alone on a mountain far from home, clinging to the side of this mountain, this mouth of this cave, and, and there's an earthquake, and, and God's saying, Elijah, what are you doing here? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, verse 12, there came a gentle whisper. And the whisper, we don't know what it said, but I think it said something like, Elijah, come here. Come here. Because verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And he's standing there looking at this total annihilation. The landscape looks completely different now. There's been a storm, there's been an earthquake, there's been a fire. Then a voice says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I'm God. Remember, I'm your God. What are you doing here? Like, why are you so afraid? Why did you run? Granted, the future was uncertain. And granted, Jezebel made these threats and she usually follows through. But have you forgotten? You forgot to factor me in. And yeah, if it's just you and Jezebel, you're in big trouble, dude. But you forgot to factor me in. Don't you remember? So what in the world are you doing here? And Elijah uh, still doesn't get it. It's kind of like us. Verse 14, he replied, see if this sounds familiar. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Or did you miss that the first time I told you this? Do you know what Elijah assumed that we all assume when we get into places where we're scared to death because of what the future holds? 
Elijah, he just, he just assumed that because he hadn't seen God doing much in this whole deal with Jezebel, he assumed that because he didn't see what God was doing, that God must not be doing anything. God must not be active then. He assumed that because God was silent, that God must be still. He assumed that because he hadn't figured out what God was going to do and how God was going to do it, that God hadn't thought about what he was going to do. He assumed that because he hadn't figured out how the, end, how the story would end, that God had no idea how the story would end. He assumed that if God could see no further than he could see. So God, in his mercy, says, okay, Elijah, sit down and listen. I'm going to fill you in. I want to fill you in on everything I've been up to since you've been gone because you realize you're 200 miles away from the action. While you've been gone, I've been busy. Just because you didn't see me at work doesn't mean I wasn't active. Just because you fled and you ran because you were afraid, that's no indication of a lack of my presence or my power. So he lets Elijah in on the plan. Verse 15 is great. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. It's like, oh, you've already picked out their next king? Yes. Also, anoint Jehu, uh, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Whoa, wait, you've picked out the next king? We have a king. Wait, you, oh, you're working on stuff? You're paying attention to what's going on? Yes. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. It's like, whoa, what? I'm retiring? There's going to be a new prophet? Yes, it's a new day, Elijah. That's why I'm asking you, what are you doing here? There's stuff to be done. I'm active. I'm your God. I have not forgotten you. What are you doing here? Oh, and just to kind of answer your concerns, Elijah, verse 17, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. So I got all my bases covered. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. It's like, you've been busy. Yep. Stuff's happening, Elijah. And maybe Elijah at this point thought, what am I doing here? Why am I 200 miles away from what you're doing? Like, why did I run? How did I forget? Why did I panic? Listen. Anytime in my life and anytime in your life that we forget God's past faithfulness, when we forget, here's what happens. When we forget God's past faithfulness, our tendency when faced with uncertainty, our tendency when faced with like, I don't know what's going to happen, our tendency when we're overwhelmed with anxiety, our tendency is to go to places we have no business going. Our tendency is to run to relationships we have no business being in. Our tendency is to make financial decisions that we have no business making. Our tendency is to get to a place emotionally that we have no real reason to be. Our tendency is to make decisions professionally with our careers and our jobs that we ordinarily wouldn't make. But when we forget God's past faithfulness, our natural tendency is to run to places and behaviors where we have no business being. And some of you could stand up this morning and tell your story story and that's your story and some of you would say you know what I was in a relationship God spoke to me said what are you doing in that relationship well God I was young and single and thought this might be the last train out of town so I had this thing going on I don't know I don't know I don't know some of you have made terrible decisions financially out of fear fear that you're not going to measure up to other people maybe other people in your family or the people you work with or some of your friends or whatever so you made some really bad financial decisions and God's like what are you doing here Maybe professionally or in your job, you've done some things that normally you'd never dream of doing, but you were afraid. 
Like, how am I going to get ahead? I'm never, this is where I'm stuck here forever, so I need to, what are you doing here? So the question is, why are you where you are? So we might have to say, well, because I looked in the future and I forgot to factor you in, God. I thought it was just mean, like Jezebel. Scared to death. Here's the deal. When we forget God's past faithfulness, we are unlikely to factor him into our future. That's why in times of uncertainty, we have to remember. In times of uncertainty, when we look into the future and it scares us, we need to look back and revisit the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Because listen, his faithfulness in your past shines a ray of hope over your future. And his faithfulness in my past shines a ray of hope over my future. And as long as we know that God has been with us, it gives us every reason in the world to face the future with confidence that he will continue to be with us. But if we allow anxiety about the future, whether it's personal or national, whether it's your family or your job or your health or your finances or something way bigger than any of that, when we allow the anxiety of what's happening now and the anxiety of what might happen in the future, when we let that overwhelm us to the point that we forget what he's done for us in the past, it's like it's, it's, it's over. And our normal tendency is to run to places we have no business being. And from these places, God loves us and extends his grace to us and doesn't give up on us. In Elijah's case, he found him 200 miles away, hiding in a cave. And he finds us where we are and he says, what are you doing here? Why are you into that? Why are you there? Why are you with him, why are you working there? Why did you do that? Why do you go crawling back to that coping behavior? What is that about? And the wisest thing we can do is to say, God, because I thought it was just me against the world. I thought it was just me against my, my cruddy circumstances here, and I forgot to factor you in. But now I'm coming back. And I know that I can face tomorrow and all the tomorrows with confidence that you will be with me as you've walked with me in the past. So here's a little exercise uh, that you can do. Sometimes, and I'm going to wrap up, when we're worshiping here in this setting and we're playing music and we're singing together and we put words on the screen and we're singing, sometimes when we're doing that, does your mind ever wander while we're singing? Yeah. It's like, no, I'm locked in. Of course it does. We all do this. We're looking at the words and you're staring off into space and you're Wondering why do I do the same songs over and over and over and over? And you wonder how many more choruses of this song. You wonder when someone's going to knock that cobweb down. It's been there for four Sundays. And your mind's all over the place. Can I tell you something that's helpful to do when we worship together every Sunday morning? This is one of the reasons why I think coming together to worship on a regular basis is important. Don't just sing the words. Words are great. Like so many of the lyrics of these songs are they're so full of theological truth. Don't just sing these words. Mentally, go back. Go back to the time when God connected you with that person. That was a defining moment for you relationally. It became a defining moment for you spiritually because that person's been so influential in your life. Go back to the family that God gave you or the family maybe that God rescued you from or those times in your life where you wondered where God was and as we worship in this setting, remember because remembering creates the context for confidence that God will walk with you and me into the future. Elijah forgot and he freaked out. 
And when you forget, when I forget, we tend to freak out. So when we gather together on Sunday mornings, it's a natural opportunity for us to have a few minutes as we worship together to sing words and to mentally rehearse God's faithfulness to us because that is the context of our lives. His faithfulness in the past is the context for what we can trust and hope in Him. So when there are times of uncertainty, we have to remember because if we forget Him in the past, we will not factor Him into the future. So for just a couple minutes, I want to do an exercise with you. First of all, uh, here's a prayer for all of us. And Heavenly Father, as I remember your faithfulness in the past, I am confident you'll walk with me into the uncertainty of the future. So for about two minutes, I want to do this. We're just going to pause. And we put three by five cards on every seat. There's pens in some of the seat backs. You can share those. Grab that, grab that card. Maybe, or if that doesn't work for you, send yourself a text. Whatever. Use the connect card in the seat back in front of you. However, find something. Let's write down three things from our past where God has demonstrated his faithfulness. Shouldn't take you two minutes. Write down a word. Write down a date. Write down some kind of code that only you know what it means, right? Draw a picture if you need to. Just pause and remember. Write down three things, either in the recent past or a long time ago, where God demonstrated his faithfulness to you. Psalm 77 says this, but then I recall all you've done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. O God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? Let's take a couple minutes to remember. Remember.